What's good, everyone? Welcome to a brand new season of Shit Talks. My name is Gabby Bosquez, and I'll be your host for today. I'm so excited to be back for a brand new season, a brand new space, and a brand new partnership. Shit Talk Studio Session, roll one, take one. This series is called Studio Sessions, and we partner with Soapbox to bring season three to life. Yeah, like, no critical thoughts, just Vox, but like, well, critical thoughts. Today's conversation is going to be about police and prison abolition. So with that being said, thank you guys for joining us. We're about to get started. Hey everyone, what's up? How we feeling, how we feeling? Y'all comfortable on this big ass couch? <laughs> I'm gonna look real little in it. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> right. I was like, we gotta call it like the big couch series or some shit. <laughs> All right, well, thank you guys again for joining us. I'm so excited to get this conversation started. I just wanna give everyone an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. So start with your name, your pronouns, where you from, and how you got started in your work. My name is Jordan Esparza. My pronouns are he, him. I'm from Waukegan, Illinois. I got started in my work, photography and videography, when I was 19 and just really needed something to do. So um, seven years later, here I am, heavy but light. And yeah. Yeah, what's up? Um, and I do rock with your work, you know, you already know that, but yeah. Um, my name is Naira. Um, I'm an interdisciplinary writer, and I'm also a teacher and an editor at Southside Weekly. And I'm from the Southside. It's part of my personality. It goes on my resume. Like, it's really who I am. In 2020, I also co-founded a mutual aid abolitionist collective called Black Rising. We have 200 backstage. Hopefully we should have enough to fill all of the bags, right? I've been doing organizing work since I was in high school, just like coming into myself. But yeah, happy to be here. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. What's up, y'all? Uh, my name is Damon Williams. I'm a movement builder from the South Side of Chicago as well. Gang, 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 gang. Um, he, him pronouns. I have been doing this work that I call movement building for about eight years now. I'm a co-founder of the Let Us Breathe Collective, also a co-creator of Ergo Media. We kind of in those spaces, I do a mixture of organizing, education, um, obviously media making and commentary, as well as being a hip hop performing artist. This campaign is about a demand for healing resources so that we can rebuild our communities kind of got pushed on this path during the Ferguson uprising in response to the murder of Mike Brown. We love you, we miss you, we will never forget you. At that time, being a part of that community being birthed and also being able to have a space to nurture um, these transformative radical ideas that I was starting to have access to, mm -hmm. to be in community where we would say that shit out loud and it not be like in an academic tone mm -hmm. was really formative. So for two or three years of, of being in that space, uh, once the uprising in Ferguson happened, and you know, for a while everybody's rapping, doing poems about the revolution, right. and a, a black-led rebellion is is happening four and a half hours away from Chicago, mm -hmm. um, and so it just was pulled. It was a you know, I think when we talk about the current state of movement, the, the popularity of even protest as a tactic, the fact that we're using the language of abolition, mm -hmm. um, the, the the people of St. Louis and the community connected and surrounding Ferguson uh, really made that possible, really opened up a portal for our society, not just regionally, but nationally and globally um, to figure out what does what does organizing mean? What does movement building mean? So being in that space mm -hmm. um, and then being one of the vehicles to help 
expand or translate or be a bridge to connect back to mm -hmm. this community in Chicago that already had this deep history of radical movement building and organizing. Um, really, you know, similar to that story of Black Visions in 2020, it was very similar of protest every week, mutual aid efforts, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and, and that forming into, well, how do we do this in a responsive, long-term way? Mm -hmm. And so um, it looked like protests that were downtown to then doing remixing the protests and instead of shutting down the street, we go in the neighborhoods on the west side mm -hmm. and do our chance on the sidewalk mm -hmm. and pass out barbecue and toys on, on holidays as then a way to get into political engagement. Right. And so in figuring out community engagement and community building as a strategy and tactic, not only also as like a, a human necessity, mm -hmm. um, we began to really form and now we have the breathing room space and liberation landing campus okay. on the south side of Chicago, where we house people, where we have a farm and garden, where we've done classes, where organizations can come and meet for free and you know do artistic programs, as well as all the myriad of activities that build up our capacity, not just for resistance, but actually for liberation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And actually, um, with Chicago Bolts, when I was a Democracy Corps fellow in 2020, we actually went to the breathing room and you guys hosted us and it was a really beautiful space. Like at the at the time that was like peak pandemic, right? So we, we were even kind of nervous being around each other, but it was, you know, like in the beginning of the pandemic, it was just so hard to like not have that connection to people. And so, you know, you guys opened your doors for us to have like a resting for radicals. It was beautiful. Like, I, you know, the space was just like to have a green space that was also kind of private and then everything from like food to like, like herbs for your healing. Like, I just really want to shout out Breathing Room and Let Us Breathe Collective because that space I think was really healing for us. And yeah, that means a lot. Yeah. Means a lot. And that's what it's for. You know, when you think mm -hmm. about it, right? Like. George Floyd was murdered outside. Mm -hmm. You know, Mike Brown was murdered outside. There has been a, there, there, you know, Laquan McDonald was murdered outside, right? Like there, there is a space is, is an important part of our oppression, but also our freedom, right? And so a lot of what, where we gather, the, the protests, the big rally, it's, it's hard to actually regenerate. It's hard to build collective consciousness mm -hmm. if we're only in meetings or only in protests. So the intention of, of models like Breathing Room is how do we actually have spaces just for y'all. Like, so the fact that you named that as, as healing and, and regenerative is really important because that's what it was there for. So thank y'all for coming and like making it be what is intended to be. Yeah, thank you. I also wanted to say like, <clears throat> if it wasn't for like orgs like y'all who are so like, um, focused on stewarding open spaces to help other people feel like they have the resources to do what it is they need, Black Rising wouldn't exist mm -hmm. because we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. Oh my gosh, if we were like, yeah, we don't know what the fuck is going on. Yeah, like no critical thoughts, just vibes, but like, well, critical, <laughs> critical thoughts and concussions or whatever the case is like, but, but for real though, like we, we really like being able to like partner with and work alongside with and glean from organizations who had been doing the work as collectives and to like use that as like a framework to like model what it is that we wanted to like think about and look like y'all are definitely a part of that. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. Hey, look at that. You see the power of community. Naira, would you like to talk a little bit more about Black Rising? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, let's like rewind a little bit to high school. So when I was in high school, I organized my first protest and it was um, basically trying to get police officers out of my Chicago public school because there was an incident with um, a cop that was in the school that was um, just 
using excessive like force and violence with one of my homies. Um, and so after that, um, I went away to school, but I was still, you know, like reading and like when I would come back to Chicago, I would do the work or like, you know, share things that I could on social media or send money or whatever the case was. But I moved back to Chicago um, in 2019. And then in 2020, I started like uh, kind of partnering with or popping out to like food drives, et cetera, that were going on because of the pandemic. And then um, when the May 30th protest happened, uh, I slid outside and got my shit rocked. Um, but um, also connected with a bunch of people who I had not seen in a while when I was away at school. And then um, kind of linked up with some friends and we were just like sliding to other people's uh, protests and just like pr providing support. And there's a group called Fortune House, um, a bunch of young artists um, and they were, uh, they had organized a really big march and they needed somebody to help chant lead. And I was like, I'm super loud and obnoxious and Let's go. And dramatic, and I will do that for y'all. And then that just kind of became the thing. And then um, I spoke at a protest in Wrigleyville uh, with uh, Chandrika, who also co-founded Black Rising, and our friend Mondo was there, and another co-founder, Tiana, was also there. And we kind of were just like, well, maybe we should just condense ourselves into one thing because we were also receiving funds and we wanted to put them in one place in order to like have the resource to redistribute them. So that's how Black Rising came to be. Thank you. <laughs> that's incredible, especially that end piece. Yeah, thank you. 2020 was a crazy year for so many reasons, right? How are you feeling and like in the midst of the murder of George Floyd and like, you know, peak pandemic, where were you guys at mentally? I had actually just like lost my job just as in like within a year of that moment, lost my job that I had out here. Um, so I was like working at like a Nordstrom Rack, um, like back in the suburbs where I live and whatnot. And I remember like the last couple of days before like the middle of March, I was just all like, yo, this is getting kind of nasty. Like everybody coming in here sick, like <clears throat> this is kind of getting crazy, you feel me? So the company actually like furloughed everybody and then i was just chilling in my basement playing 2k like <laughs> hella like like when people say like i didn't go outside like i didn't go to the mailbox like i was so my family had just bought this like home gym off facebook marketplace that we found for like the low like literally like three weeks before like anybody had news or anything so i'm in the crib with an Xbox. Get it heavy. He said heavy, but life. No, real. literally, like, I got, I got my Xbox, a home gym, and food, food, <laughs> and you know some other necessities. You feel me? And and uh, I was, I was really just focused on like taking care of myself and kind of just like a big thing for me during that time was like, I think we talk a lot of like figuratively about. Um, you know, to transcend ourselves into better people, we have to do a lot of inner work and things like that. So that moment for me was really about doing a lot of that and really just like confronting myself um, consistently um, and really confronting myself as I stand as a person in this world and, you know, confronting the world as well. Um, so that's, that's really what I did. Um, I really genuinely did not even like get fresh air for like a smooth two months. Like I wasn't, I wasn't doing nothing. And then one day my homie Go Hayes was like, he just called me and he was just like, hey, you wanna take some pictures? I'm like, yeah, yeah, we could do that. 
And then that like broke my like fresh air hiatus like after about like two and a half months. Yeah. That's I don't really remember much after that. <laughs> the shit was to remember. Yeah. Much to remember. Yeah. Shout out Gohaze. Yeah. That's interesting. I feel like as an artist, that was like either a time where we like didn't make anything or we made like a bunch of shit. Mm -hmm. And yes, <laughs> I didn't make anything except for noise or like complaints. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like when the world shut down, I, and I had just came back from um, Woman of the World Poetry Slam. And so it was supposed to be like this great opportunity where all of these work opportunities and freelance opportunities were supposed to come from that. And I made it to final stage and I placed fifth out of a hundred. I was like, yeah, let's I'm go. Key, whatever, bro, nothing. <laughs> the world shut down. It's oh, like all yeah. of my hard work just like went down the drain and we just never talked about it again. And so I was just in the crib and that was like, that's like fucking me up a little bit too. Um, but I also like, I'm very social, so I was cool with like the solitude, but like I said, living by yourself during a pandemic, like not seeing anybody or anything like that, it started to drive me crazy a little bit. And then um, my parents, um, my dad is like uh, pretty old. So my parents like, don't bring your ass over here. If you like, I do not want whatever it is that's like out there in the air. So just like really isolated. And then um, my birthday was uh, May uh, 4th and so, mm. I was, it was like middle of like all of the, like middle of uh, uh, just folks like basically staying to themselves. So I spent that time mostly by myself with the exception of a few people too. And then fast forward to the end of the month, I mentioned <clears throat> uh, like the May 30th, like where everybody just like went outside, people was doing whatever it is they had to do, uh, but also um, protesting, um, gathering, whatever that was. And honestly, like, that made me close to like some of the people that I'm close to now, but it was also like very wild and like very scary and like kind of traumatizing and like also like pretty painful. And like, um, I just remember like after that, I went outside uh, like every day for the next like three weeks, like nonstop. Like every single day was like either like a protest or a food drive or like organizing something, sitting with somebody trying to figure things out. Um, do I think that was like the best mode of action as like an organizer, activist, radical, whatever the case is? Probably not. I was like, I think um, somebody asked me how I was like taking care of myself during that time. And I was like, I wasn't, I was batshit crazy. Like I was very like, you know what I'm saying? Like I just was like waking up and like doing whatever I had to do and going to sleep and like, or laying in my bed at night and not being able to like think straight and just waking up in the morning and doing it again mm -hmm. on top of like the ongoing pandemic and not having a job at that time. So. Um, it was a very weird year, but I also like learned a lot and got close to a lot of people. And um, yeah, I don't know. It was a strange time. Feels like we were in the twilight zone. So for real. That's all, but I didn't make anything. I didn't make shit, bro. I was not an artist, bro. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. Yeah, you know, I mean, definitely a lot of what y'all share relates. Um, there was this like first ten day period of pandemic where there, it was obviously scary. Of, like, you know, our health is all at risk, but it was quiet for a quick second before mm -hmm. we all started figuring out the virtual platforms and Zoom. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So at first it was actually a, a time of reflection mm -hmm. uh, and then it got really busy, which was which was a surprise because the pandemic, you know, to bring it connected to organizing was a was a real shock because, as we mentioned, kind of in the intro, a lot of what our work is is about gathering people, right. putting mm -hmm. people together. And like that was our superpower. And that was like taken away. And so trying to figure out how to respond 
Um, so having, you know, getting access to funds to be able to redistribute to people and just grant out $100 payments to folks, mm -hmm. being able to have virtual gatherings so folks can still feel connected and, you know, um, also politically engaged. Uh, but then, you know, it also created a time of collective consciousness. Mm -hmm. So within a week, we have the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Mm -hmm. And then the the collective trauma of, of, of not even a nation, a, a, a global society mm -hmm. seeing the murder of George Floyd. Um, and so, you know, the first 24 hours, the 30th and 31st of activation in Chicago were really intense mm -hmm. and like nothing that ever happened. Actually, let's even zoom out from Chicago. Mm -hmm. It's important to note in those first two weeks, every state in the United States had an action or a protest or some type of activation under the, the banner of black liberation or anti-racism mm -hmm. in dozens of countries around the world. Mm -hmm. And the estimation is anywhere from 20 to 40 million people took the streets in some way. Mm -hmm. And that's never happened in human history. Right. There's no anthropological evidence of that type of activation ever happening. So, right, so this is world changing stuff. A few years ago, it was a few dozen people in Chicago who even had any familiarity with the concept of abolition. I, I, mean, I knew them, you know, it was like mm -hmm. anywhere from 40 to 150 people. Yeah. Right? And to our surprise, by 2020, we see Chicago got, downtown got shut down mm -hmm. by thousands of people. Versus raised. With signs of, let's take these resources away, let's build a new system, abolish right. the police, abolish prisons. So that was phenomenal. And the police don't like that. And all they have the capacity for is violence. Mm -hmm. So they responded to, mm -hmm community with violence. Um, our mayor also um, created a bottleneck where she raised the bridges, mm -hmm. shut down entry and exit, that was so and shut down the train system. That's never been done either. And then mm -hmm. in that, then the, 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 the mandate was to, by any means, right, remove people from taking up public space, mm -hmm. which was done through violence. That violence then continued for about 24 hours. So the next day, the 31st, uh, many organizers gathered in Washington Park on the south side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And as we're gathering, strategizing, reflecting, having this beautiful, come, many of us are seeing each other for the first time in mm -hmm. years, especially in the middle of pandemic. Um, and we see protests organically. Yeah. And the whole reason we're there is like, we are some of the people that have been experiencing this. We have some lessons, we have some knowledge. How do we support our folks, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't start this, we're not in control of this, mm -hmm. but leadership is needed. Right. So we go to, where the protest ends up in Hyde Park. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, eventually police start getting physical with yeah. folks that weren't connected to the protest. Mm -hmm. Organizers come to name, to intervene, and then they start beating up women and children. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in that, it became a scuffle. Um, and the, you know, to make a long story short, uh, a few of us, about four or five of us were arrested. Mm -hmm. Many were harmed. I was of one of the people that were arrested. Mm -hmm. In that arrest, I was taken from behind and slammed onto my head onto the street and was concussed for months also on my arrest um, in protest of the murder of George Floyd, right. which was visceral, uh, had an officer, actually a black officer, placed his knee on my neck in front of hundreds of people um, as an act of power and then was then arrested, spent 12 or so hours in jail or in the police station. Uh, and that really, that day or that activity was really the kernel of what then became the defund CPD campaign. Mm -hmm. Also, it's, it um, re-emphasized and sparked up a lot of the mutual aid efforts yeah. uh, because one of the vile things that our city did as police were beating people in the streets was shut down food programs mm -hmm. for young people. Mm -hmm. right. um, so one of the, the most important abolitionist 
works that have came out of that time is Market Box, mm-hmm. uh, um, which started in the Washington Park area and now serves more of Woodlawn two years later of still using this mutual aid ethic mm-hmm. to distribute food to folks as an active community building, power building, an entry point into education and organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, out of that then became like the most intense movement activity that I've ever known of. Mm-hmm. So dozens of teach-ins, dozens of workshops, mm-hmm. dozens of protests, mutual aid, efforts set up all over the place, um, a, a lot of canvassing and reaching out and getting signatures and getting support. Um, and we can like go into some of the nuts and bolts if we want to get like into the political strategy. Mm-hmm. The, the, the gist is, um, even two years later, this campaign is still going strong, still connecting with community and doing some really important work right now that has led a referendum in support of the treatment, not trauma ordinance mm-hmm. to have an investment into first responders that are mental health professionals mm-hmm. instead of having police respond to mental health crises mm-hmm. to respond again only with violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that was a traumatic that day in Hyde Park after on the 31st, I was like, I'm going to stay at home um, because the day before was like a lot. We were trapped downtown. We didn't have you can call an Uber, you can call a Lyft like, um, yeah, it was very crazy and very like. I know what the I know what like cops can do when like they get you by yourself. And I was with a very small group of people, um, even like, you know, being like crushed in the crowd and someone saying my braids used to be purple. Someone seeing me from over the bridge, getting crushed and reaching in and like pulling me out like. And so I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay home. But I had medical supplies and things like that that people had donated to me. And so I found out that people was getting their ass beat outside, like just down the street from my crib in Hyde Park. And so I came outside and it was like, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not a medic. I never trained to be a medic. I have like other tasks that I take in the group, but I do think it's important that everybody has at least an understanding of like what to do when things happen. I do not know how to treat a busted head. You know what I'm saying? Like, I do not know how to No one does, it's actually the fact. for reference. So. Yeah, I came out there. I was like putting pressure on and I and I but yeah, like and coming out in the midst of like y'all getting arrested and y'all getting like uh beat up and like suddenly like realizing like, oh, this is about to like only get worse. Um, but also acknowledging like the beautiful things that came from that, like market box and people's grab and go, et cetera. So mm-hmm. but that was very well said. For context, too, I just wanted to put one thing out there that I think sometimes we forget about things because they're like mad traumatic. You mm-hmm. feel me? Mm-hmm. So I think like Chicago artists in general can really relate to this is like right before actually everything shut down, this artist economy in Chicago was poised for probably one of the biggest years for improvement we were ever going to see because we were just coming from the all-star game Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. being in Chicago. And that brought so much money Mm -hmm. to this city and to smaller freelance artists, like including myself. That was actually like the first time I made more than like a a work check, Mm -hmm. you know, um, like during that period. Mm -hmm. And then just an abrupt like deading of money. (laughs) And that like, I mean, we know that stuff affects people too. And you know, the circumstances and, and stuff like that. So I think when we talk about what happens in Chicago, especially during that year and that time, I think the impact that that event had on a very distinct community is is worth worthy of the broader conversation as well. And it's very connected to the larger conversation of abolition that we're talking about, because a, a lot of what the political trajectory that came out of uprising and, and the pandemic was paying attention to fiscal budgets. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. And so one of the 100%. things that, that developed was uh, the city got hundreds of millions of dollars in federal aid for pandemic for freelance workers, for 
to keep artistic programs, mm -hmm. you know, for food, for Social housing services. And more or less, you know, there's we could break down the numbers, but the general takeaway is they didn't do that. Mm -hmm. And they used they that gave money it to the police. So the overtime of the police budget yeah. in real time while folks are resisting this violence. The thing you're talking about of there was so much abundance or gen generativeness mm -hmm. that was supposed to happen that got interrupted that could have been salvaged Sword, yeah. or resourced yeah. in some way but the point of of this conversation is our society chooses to invest in violence before anything mm -hmm. yeah 100 percent. we had the same problem in waukegan that like but uh when they raised the bridges i was actually trapped like with my best friend that he's been my best friend my whole life um, and like he does like data analysis and stuff like that. So he he was making like figures of the Waukegan like city budget um, for me to like tell people about and stuff. And like Waukegan operates on like sixty million dollars. You know, it's a much smaller place than this place, but but forty five million of the dollars are going to the police. Like like that's not sustainable. Like there's there's like like. Like I can't, I can't, I can't get jiggy to this. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I can't. Like, what am, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, they call it budgets, but it's like it's the opposite. And not you're not budgeting. It's not the budget is not budgeting. Like, and they're not they're not budgeting on the budget at all. They're like nothing, no part of it. It's crazy too. And then when you look at the the other areas where they're like deficient, where you're like, we need these things in this box, and the the discrepancy of right. the boxes like Ebony and Waukegan the police were getting 45 million and community development was getting less than 5 million so when there's questions of why is the community not developing there's there's quite okay. literally not enough money for substantial community development I'm sure y'all are seeing the same issues probably per ward per district per precinct mm -hmm in this city yeah and also like you think about for example when the uh, blizzard hit when no snow trucks but the whole budget on like what we were supposed to use for like that that resource was used when they were trying to block off streets with snow trucks and garbage trucks and fire Literally. trucks and use all of that money and then it snowed in the winter time and we were like we can't get out the house because there's no snow trucks you don't have no money what did you spend the money on yeah it's and it's very stressful to see it happen in real time because like you said they're shutting down like um, programs to feed people. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think people are going to do? If they, What are they supposed to do? Are we supposed to just starve and die? Right. Are we supposed to also just watch our neighbors starve and die? You have like um, cops coming to like mutual aid initiatives trying to just like scope out and see what y'all are doing. And oh, y'all can't stand right there. Oh, y'all can't sit right here. Like we are trying to feed people. What else do you expect people to do during a pandemic of all times mm -hmm. where it's like exasperated? Right. Yeah. No, I'm glad y'all touched on that because I, I feel that even from someone who like doesn't even know the most about budgets or anything, but I feel like it doesn't matter who you are and that knowledge, like in that time of the pandemic where so many people were losing their jobs, there was no kind of like, at the time we didn't know we were gonna get stimulus checks, right? So we were just like, people are losing their jobs and like rent was still due at the first, you know? So like in a time of like really big insecurity where we were all like, fuck, like we don't have actually any safety nets for moments like this. And then, you know, you've come to find out, okay, there's some money coming in cool, like, you know, we're going to be able to support our communities. And then, like, the blatant disrespect of, like, giving it, giving so much of that money to the police, especially at a time where, like, the police are being highly documented, abusing people, and being violent towards our communities. And so it's just, to me, like, it's just, like, a time where I reflect. And it still pisses me off because, like, 
you know, we're still like like the police are getting more and more money. More and more nationally, year. nationally too now. And they're about to get another influx. And it's like they get money when they already have money and and, right. and other <laughs> like, people. Yo, never lacking in the yeah, money. Yeah, they they they're not they're not underfunded. One, the things that we need are underfunded. Mm-hmm. And I would say like I don't really want to make them out to be their counterparts, but a lot of people pit in society like educators and police against each other. And the effectiveness of both of those groups is one completely opposite based on the money that they're getting. Well, educators are so low funded with such a high effectiveness and police are so high funded with absolutely no effectiveness at all. I don't even think I've seen them pick up trash. Like, you know, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And I guess I want to touch on also, I know we, we are talking a little bit about, you know, well, one, police budgets, right? Like them getting all the fucking money. And so, and like, I think in 2020, we came to talk more about like defund the police. Just the language of like defund and abolition became like more frequent. And I think like everyday people's like language. And so just to like sort of set the ground, um, Damon, would you mind defining for us like what abolition means? Yeah. So for me, I have a very like simple like general definition of just the word in, in whatever context. Mm-hmm. For me, I understand abolition to be the creative undoing of harmful systems, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, so often when we discuss structural violence or systems of harm, what we have been conditioned and taught to do is to passively accept, to accommodate, to concede, or to try to make marginal cosmetic changes to the face of those systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are, you know, explicitly and implicitly discouraged from democratically demanding systems change, particularly in the central spaces of power. So, you know, the economy, state militarization, which police is an extension of. So to go back, the creative undoing of harmful systems. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying, how do we make this thing that is really bad a little less really bad? Mm -hmm. How do we actually have a transformative approach to create new outcomes, to center health? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, abolition that we're talking about now to carceral systems or the prison industrial complex as the, the space critical resistance uh, uh, offered us in the mid to late 1990s um, is connected to U.S. history of anti-black violence and indigenous genocide, mm-hmm. namely, you know, the establishment of chattel slavery in this yeah. land, right? So we know that prisons in they, how they function were a reform on the plantation system with mm-hmm. the creation of black codes and Jim, Jim Crow apartheid. And we know that police institutions are birthed out of slave patrol and in indigenous removal acts across the country, right? So the Chicago Police Department was instituted the same year the Indigenous Removal Act was passed. Mm-hmm. And that was one of its initial mandates to, to help facilitate. So how do we create new relationships, new practices that are geared towards undoing harm? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that's a multi-generational effort. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so a lot of times people are abolition, they understandably mistake that folks are saying, burn it all down right now, yeah. even though that might be gratifying. Right. I'm like, like, well, ain't nothing wrong with burn it down. I'm not not saying it. I'm not going to be a firefighter. Exactly. If you burn it, I won't. Yeah. But there are steps. If you talk about abolition, 
Um, it's a black liberatory tradition, right? It, it had a resurgence in the 60s and in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I want to also name that it is a black feminist tradition mm -hmm. in many ways as well. And so we have to shout out Angela Davis as one of the crafters of the language of abolition democracy and one of the fundamental organizers of critical resistance. We have to shout out Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, who was also a part of critical resistance mm -hmm. and is instrumental to the movement to stop the expansion of California state penitentiary system. Mm -hmm. And then we got to shout out hometown connected, but New York also has a claim on her, Miriam Kaba, the phenomenal mm -hmm. thinker and organizer. So for anybody, I know I'm not supposed to look on camera, but for anybody <laughs> who wants to know more about abolition, look at, you ain't got to read first. Just go to YouTube and look at every word they've ever said. Reading is fundamental, it will help. Yeah. So they have go, some good books, I'm just saying. Every word that you can. Reading helps uh, everything. And so in that tradition, one of the things that Ruthie Wilson Gilmore says very eloquently is, we people falsely think of abolition about absence or taking away. Mm -hmm. And what we're promoting is for presence and new types of presence, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so Chicago is central to the fact that people are talking about all, all over the country about a couple of blocks from here, the McCormick Place in 2015, the International Association of Chief of Police had their, con con their global convening here. Mm -hmm. And they brought our then president Barack Obama to be their keynote speaker. Coincidentally, during the, the birth of a black liberatory uh, movement, mm -hmm. right? So as young black people in 2014 and 2015 are rising up against police violence, mm -hmm. folks from all over the country came to Chicago and Chicago organizers kind of were the core of mm -hmm. coordinating that action. Mm -hmm. And the that was the first time in contemporary history that the Divest Invest platform mm -hmm. was, was pushed out. And mm -hmm. so what we say now of defund the police, that's actually a shorthand from divest mm -hmm. from police and prison systems and invest into community, into health, into things that build more restorative relationships mm -hmm. that will allow us to transform our society. So then when we, so that organizing in 2014 and 2015 sustains. And so then in 2020, right, the whole world is now in place, is yeah. stuck in their home. We, we are now more connected with these digital tools and with social media, and we all see this traumatic act of violence, right? Mm -hmm. And it shows the work of what political education does because mm -hmm. so many people were then activated by, oh, maybe it's not about just that officer Chauvin, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It is about the history and the system and the resources and the fact that it's happening in our name mm -hmm. right. and with our, with our collective investment through taxation, um, that it's not actually an individual issue. It's a mm -hmm. systemic mm -hmm. and similar to how I named the system of um, chattel slavery, mm -hmm. carceral slavery still exists. Oh, I didn't even get into that. I'm sorry, I'm, 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 I'm gonna stop after this. Yeah. It's important to note. Fuck your shit. Right. You know, it's becoming more popular now, but it's important yeah. to note the 13th Amendment, mm -hmm. you know, which which was the ending of chattel slavery, mm -hmm. which well, I keep using that word. I don't say just slavery. I'm saying right. chattel slavery because the, the parchment says slavery or involuntary servitude shall mm -hmm. not exist in the United States or any of its jurisdictions, except mm -hmm. for punishment of a crime. Yeah. So every day that we've been breathing, right, and our parents and our grandparents have been breathing on this land. We've been living on a place where slavery is constitutionally legal, mm -hmm. and millions of people are subjected to that reality, mm -hmm. right? So similar to that question of what would you be demanding or asking or thinking if you were alive in 1822, mm -hmm. in 2022, the push to, we actually need to transform our society, we don't need to accommodate this, and whatever the, the steps may be, 
whether they are, you know, six months, six years, 60 years, mm-hmm. we have to begin this process of creatively undoing this harmful oppressive system. Yes. You know, obviously we know that this is an ongoing conversation, right? Like this, we can talk about this forever. And so I appreciate you guys like making the space and, you know, making it digestible for everybody to come like at all levels. So let's do a part two. Hey, let's go. All right, well, let's do a part yes. Part <laughs>